Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I learned something interesting today, at around 4am, when I had woken up early with the intention of getting some work done. I learned that in the same way that Spotify, the music streaming platform, will present to you at the end of the year your 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 year in review, your right your yearly wrap-up, in which they show you what are the genres in which you spent most of your listening time, what are the individual tracks or artists to which you gave the most playback. There is something similar on a platform called Goodreads. And Goodreads, if you're not familiar with it, is a, is basically it's owned by Amazon now, but it's basically a social network for nerds. And I, when I saw that you can open your Goodreads app and it will present to you your 2022 reading year in review, I got really fucking excited. I got so excited that I abandoned the task at hand. I opened my Goodreads app to see, to have the AI present to me with little animated confetti and shit, just what a fucking pimp reader I had been in the year 2022, because it has been a point of personal pride that I read more books in 2022 than any other year in my life. I've probably read more books in 2022 than any two years of my life combined. So I open the app, I go to my year 2022 in review, and it tells me, it congratulates me, and says that I read six books in 2022. And what's interesting about the number six is that it's a fucking lie. I read way more than six books. I read upward of a hundred books. And so I went to investigate this problem. There's a little tab. I, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one who had this issue because there was a ready tab there that's like, hey, did you read more books than we said you did? Put the gun down, click this link, and you can fucking, uh, you know, amend your list. And it turns out that the reason the list was inaccurate is because over the course of the past year, although I have been logging the books that I've been reading, only six times did I remember to insert the dates. It's not a big deal, but I was so put out by this that I spent almost an hour fucking abandoning my work and just looking up books that I could remember reading in 2022 and and putting in the app like oh I read this in 2022 and I I came up with another 90 titles and I I know I'm bothered because I know there are more in this apartment that I read and maybe some that are from the library and I I, I just don't remember anyways I got the number up to 96 um, hovering right near my goal that I had set myself last year which was a hundred books which is very aspirational I didn't actually think I would get there but it, another I was prompted with an interest with a challenging question. I, I got to wondering, like, why am I nine years old? Why is it so important? Not only that this, this app that I seldom open accurately reflect to me and then broadcast to strangers that I have read what feels to me like a prodigious number of books this year. Like, it's one thing to know your number and maybe have a little ledger or a Google Doc where you're keeping track of everything that you've read, and then you, you just close the curtains once or twice a week, pop open the Lubriderm, and go over those titles again and celebrate yourself. That should suffice if you're a functioning adult. But for some reason, I, I like, I really need people to know. 
And I, and I was even thinking, like, it works against me, kind of, to broadcast exactly what I'm reading, exactly how much reading I'm doing, because, for one thing, if I am trying to argue that Cuba Tooth, the book I spent most of this year researching and writing, if I'm trying to argue and pitch this book as having been, like, extensively researched, and then anyone who's, anyone can just look on my Goodreads and see what books I read this year, to research it, they might have different standards than me. And they might be like, actually, this book is fucking hardly researched at all. Maybe you read 30 books to back it up? Like, that's nothing. Although there was, as I keep mentioning, there were also many JSTOR articles. But another thing that feels kind of sticky and gross to mention here is like, this is kind of a literary podcast, and uh, my hope is that you, as a listener, are chiming in because you're like, hey, this dude, he reads a lot of books. He seems pretty smart. And if you want people to think that you're smart, it's good to not let them know exactly what you're reading, exactly how much of it you're getting done. It's a bit of smoke and mirrors as a, like a performer, I guess, that you want people to maybe think that you're reading way more than you actually are. So it basically, it just it makes it harder for me to lie to strangers, to present myself as being better than I am if everyone can just see what I'm reading. But also, like, it could, you, I feel like you could look at what I read in 2022 on Goodreads and you could, like, kind of figure out what happens somewhat in Cuba Tooth, which I wouldn't like, but in what, and, and in interrogating myself about, like, why the fuck am I compromising myself in this way? I think it's because I'm so bad at everything else that I attempt. I can't, I'm not handy. I'm not athletic. I need a compass and noise-canceling headphones to find a clitoris. I'm just so bad at everything that, like, the one th arena in which I excel, I think, is reading and writing. And so when it comes to that, I, I'm just super protective of how people see my performance as a reader and writer because I feel like that's my one social saving grace is that people are like, oh, you know what he sucks at? Everything I've seen him attempt. He's a, he seems to be very well read though. So I should preserve that impression, that one redeeming social quality by shrouding it in secrecy. Also, I should be bending over backwards to protect the integrity of Cuba Tooth, which is now, as soon as I finish this final draft of Cuba Fruit, Cuba Tooth is going to be my all-encompassing fucking my white whale. And by the way, this sounds very optimistic and overly confident, but I'm going to say it because I'm feeling optimistic and overly confident. I am now halfway through editing a dra the draft of Cuba Fruit that is going out on a second round of submission to editors. And I'm fucking saying it here. You can hold me to account on this and then mock me in 2024. This is the last draft of Cuba Fruit. I'm putting it out there before it gets purchased before it gets like a book deal like i'm going through this now with somewhat you know clearer eyes because i haven't looked at the book in a few months and it's i'm really improving it and the way that i'm improving it is by making making it less turns out the biggest problem with that book is things i contributed to it anyways i am soon to be totally immersed in cuba tooth as i said but lately i've also really wanted a non-fiction project to be working on, like to be writing while I'm editing Cuba Tooth. And after a lot of consideration, I have finally settled on what that project is, and I'll tell you what that project is in a minute, but first, I want to tell you why, it, why I'm doing it. I am right now, re I am exactly halfway through the fourth volume in Robert Caro's as yet uncomplete, sprawling Lyndon Johnson 
biography. It's the fourth volume. It's, it's This one is only 600 pages, but I'm about 3,000 pages into the overall narrative. And uh, guess what? He fi he just became president. So I'm... G and, and this volume is so good. It is so concentrated. It only covers like th th three years in Lyndon Johnson's life, basically from when he became vice president to, or agreed to campaign with Kennedy as vice president to I think his first State of the Union address as president himself in uh, 1964. And I came upon this scene where I was just, it felt magical. It was one of the few, I, that sounds so fucking corny, so nerdy, but every now and then I do have an experience reading something where I'm like, fucking books are awesome. Books are fucking cool. But also like, but like beyond that, it's not just an aesthetic thing. It's like, it feels magical. And I think this is a cumulative experience. Like it's not that I was falling entirely in love with the words on this page. It's that I came to the words on this page 3,000 pages along in the journey. And I'm going to read you this page, but first, some context, and don't worry, it is one page. The, the context for this volume is that the pivotal relationship when Lyndon Johnson was vice president was not his relationship with his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, or with John F. Kennedy, the president, and his employer. Actually, technically not his employer. I realize that's one of the dicey things about a president choosing who's going to run with them as a vice president, is that a president cannot fire a vice president. Sorry for the background noise, incidentally, there's always construction early in the morning outside my window. But yeah, the, the most pivotal relationship that Lyndon Johnson experienced, that he endured, that he suffered when he was vice president, was his relationship with Jack Kennedy's younger brother, Bobby. Robert Kennedy was the attorney general. He was always in the White House, always conferring with his brother, and he was kind of a, a protector of Jack Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy fucking despised Lyndon Johnson, not without reason, because Lyndon Johnson was a corrupt fucking piece of shit. He was he was incredibly brutal with his colleagues and, and competitors, with his wife. But anyways, he and Bobby Kennedy fucking hated each other, and Bobby Kennedy kind of loved that Lyndon Johnson was in the White House because as vice president, he had none of the power that he'd had when he was a Senate majority leader, which is the job that he left in order to come to the White House. Johnson would open his mouth at a meeting and Bobby Kennedy would just interrupt, tell him to be quiet or adjourn the meeting abruptly while Lyndon Johnson was just getting his thoughts out. Bobby Kennedy made no attempts to conceal the fact that he hated Johnson and wanted him to be embarrassed. And then the day comes toward the end of John F. Kennedy's first term, November 22nd, 1963, when he is driving through Dealey Plaza in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas, and uh, he gets shot twice. One bullet goes through his neck, another one goes through his head, and the reason the second bullet goes through his head is because John F. Kennedy was wearing a back brace. He had severe spinal problems. Some of it is a result of, like, shitty cockamamie treatments he was getting for a stomach issue when he was younger, and then all of that spinal deterioration was exacerbated by some injuries he sustained during World War II. Anyways, had he not been wearing that back brace, conceivably, when he got that first bullet in the neck, he would have sort of doubled over, he would have collapsed. You can kind of see him thrashing in the car in that Zapruder film. Speaking of which, holy shit, almost, you have almost certainly seen, if not the Zapruder film itself, images from it. It was a piece of footage filmed by a guy, I think his name was Abraham Zapruder. He was there in Dallas on the day of Kennedy's assassination, just happened to have a fucking portable personal video camera, and he filmed the entire assassination. And of course, 
that fucking piece of footage is ubiquitous in American culture. It's you've, you've seen it on TV, you've seen photos of it in a million fucking magazines, books, whatever. What I didn't realize until November 22nd this past year, I, I, I forget what the what number anniversary it is, the 59th, I think, of Kennedy's assassination. This year, I realized that every iteration of the Zapruder film that I have ever seen completely excluded the frames in which Kennedy gets a bullet in the head and his head explodes. I had not, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was seeing a version of the film that was kind of touched up. Not that gore was added or anything, but just the image was stabilized and crystallized. And it's a fucking gruesome, horrific fucking video. And even though like he was not pronounced dead at the scene, Kennedy was rushed to a hospital and like thrown into surgery and they really tried to save him. I don't know how the fuck, because you can, and as Caro spells out, you see his brain eject from his head. And as Caro depicts here, I hadn't heard about this, like you also see in that footage, you know, people realize what has happened. The car carrying the president and the first lady sort of speeds up to take off and get out of harm's way. And in that process, you see a secret service agent jump across the trunk of the car and he's clinging to the car as it's driving away. And what Caro recounts is that that Secret Service, he, he peered down into the back seat, he saw Jack Kennedy piled in Jackie Kennedy's lap, and then he turned around, he was still clinging to the speeding car, he turned around, he looked at the driver of, of the car carrying Lyndon Johnson, and he gave a thumbs down sign, indicating basically there's no chance in hell this dude survived. People have speculated like, oh, Kennedy might have survived if um, he wasn't wearing that back brace. But he got the first bullet, like, in the center of his throat. Anyways, this is very grisly. But the, the reason I bring this all up is because here's the context for the one page I'm going to read to you is that Bobby Kennedy has spent almost three years now just trying really hard to make Lyndon Johnson feel like a powerless piece of shit. And then Johnson makes the decision to call Bobby Kennedy, like a half hour after he's just learned that his brother has been assassinated, and he says to Bobby Kennedy, the Attorney General, who is still struck with terror and grief, Attorney General, how should I go about taking power? How should I go about taking the oath of office? And Caro writes this page, sort of pausing the historical moment, taking that historical moment out of context, and you feel the biographer, the historian, holding this historical moment in his palm and turning it over like a crystal and just studying it from different angles. Okay, so where we are at this point in the chapter is Kennedy has been declared dead, and instead of Air Force Two, Lyndon Johnson, who is now ipso facto the president, has been escorted to Air Force One. And although he is the president, he is making decisions, he's coordinating everything, he takes immediate control of the situation, he has not yet taken the oath of office. And here we find him on Air Force One claiming the master bedroom, which still has JFK and Jacqueline Kennedy's shit in the closets. And Caro tells us that Johnson has to make a very important, intimate, delicate phone call. Objective, rational reasons can explain why Lyndon Johnson called Robert Kennedy. And one of the things I love, by the way, is that he opens a new paragraph that way. After being very discreet about it, just telling us that it's a delicate phone call Johnson has to make, that's how Caro opens the section where he's going to be talking about the fact that the person he called was Bobby Kennedy. You can hear in Caro's writing that he himself is kind of like aghast at Johnson's choice. Objective, rational reasons can explain why Lyndon Johnson called Robert Kennedy. One of the purposes of the call was to obtain a legal opinion on a matter of government policy, and Kennedy was the country's chief 
legal officer. He was the attorney general. And with the decision to take the oath having been made, the wording of the oath was needed. And there was also the question of who was legally empowered to administer the oath. And these pieces of information could be obtained most authoritatively from the same source, the Attorney General. And there were strategic reasons for him to have called Bobby. Lyndon Johnson seems to have had, even in this first hour after John F. Kennedy's death, feelings that would torment him for the rest of his life. Feelings understandable in any man placed in the presidency, not through an election, but through an assassin's bullet. And feelings exacerbated in this case by the contrast, and, and what he felt was the world's view of the contrast, between himself and the president he was replacing, by the contempt in which he had been held by the people around the president, and by the stark geographical fact of the location of the act that had elevated him to office. Recalling his feelings years later, in his retirement, Johnson would say that even after he had taken the oath, for millions of Americans I was still illegitimate, a naked man with no presidential covering, a pretender to the throne, an illegal usurper. And then there was Texas, my home, the home of the murder. And then there were the bigots and the dividers and the eastern intellectuals who were waiting to knock me down before I could even begin to stand up. He seems to have felt, even in this first hour, that the best way to legitimize his ascent to the throne, to make himself seem less like a usurper, would be to demonstrate that his ascent had the support of his predecessor's family. The decision to be sworn in immediately, in Dallas, instead of waiting until he returned to Washington, had been made. But he wanted that decision to be approved by the man whose approval would carry the most weight. And now Caro shifts his tone. There were, of course, reasons for him not to have called Robert Kennedy, reasons for him to have obtained the information he wanted from someone else, anyone else. The questions he asked on the call, whether the swearing-in could take place in Dallas, what was the wording of the oath, who could administer the oath, were not complicated questions and could have been answered by any one of a hundred government officials. Whatever the reasons, a half hour after Robert Kennedy had been told that the brother he loved so deeply was dead, the telephone rang again, and when Kennedy picked it up, he found himself talking to the man he hated so deeply, who was asking him to provide details of the precise procedure by which he could, without delay, assume his brother's office. And I was just so fucking enchanted by this. I just thought this is this felt magical. And I again, I think it's a cumulative thing because Caro is like keeping the historical momentum going, going, going. And when finally, after thousands of pages during which he has really shored up his credit as a as a scrupulous historian, he pauses. And he pauses not over the historical moment that you think he would pause over, which is the assassination. He pauses over what one of his characters chooses to do in the immediate aftermath. And the fact that this guy, Lyndon Johnson, he has just been anointed, he has just ascended to the presidency, the most powerful dude in the, in the country, probably the planet at this point, 63. And one of his first executive actions, basically, could be seen not as a political move, but as a vindictive fucking chance to get back at someone who's been, anyways. That's what made me want to write a piece of nonfiction. And so, as will maybe make sense, if you heard the last episode of the podcast where I read aloud and sort of dissected The Great Gatsby, the first chapter of it, I'm thinking of doing just a very, very, like, meticulously annotated version 
of The Great Gatsby. A little, uh, last year, it went into the public domain. So you can go online, copy all the text of The Great Gatsby, reformat it into for in a Microsoft Word doc, and then convert it to an EPUB, and then throw it up on Amazon and sell it in your own format, with your own cover design, and with your own introduction, commentary throughout. So I was thinking of, yeah, like just as like a side project, uh, literary project, as I'm editing Cubatooth to be writing and assembling. An annotated version of The Great Gatsby, which is also kind of an essay. Something existing entirely in the footnotes or the endnotes. Analyzing the text, um, drawing connections, riffing on it. I don't know, maybe it's a bad idea and I'll drop this project once I'm knee deep in it. That's it for today. Check me out on Goodreads, I guess. Also, if you heard a couple episodes ago, I did a whole riff about selling um, a folder of like my most prized Pokemon cards from when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, I needed the money and so it did sell and it sold for um, $670. 12% of that goes to eBay and then 30 something of it was for shipping. So I walked away with 489, I think, something like that. That's it for me. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>